Welcome to Senlightened, a podcast for those playing a supportive role in the life and education of a child with special educational needs. Hosted by leading special educational needs mentor Amanda Sokel, this podcast aims to guide and support carers, educators, and parents on the journey to help our little ones thrive. Hello, I'm Amanda Sokel, and on this episode, I speak with a mum who was faced with many challenges including the difficulty of finding schools for her son, George. To be told by the local council that his current school had said that they would no longer keep him and they couldn't meet his needs and therefore they did not want to be the school that was chosen for him. I was suddenly blindsided with this huge emotional issue of the fact that, you know, my son had been basically kicked out of school. That was Esther who I first met a number of years ago when we were following a similar path, trying to find the right schools for our respective children. Esther's journey starts, as many of us do, with a gradual realisation that her son George needed more support than other children. As you listen to the conversation, you'll hear how acceptance played a major role. Welcome, Esther. I'm always curious about people's stories, what's going on in their lives when they realise their child is struggling more than others. Tell us a bit about that time of your life. Sure. It was a strange journey for us because we didn't realise George was struggling for quite a long time. And he was a very exuberant, happy little boy. You know, he slept well as a baby. We were living overseas when he was little and we lived in sort of like a a little housing area that was all shared and the kids could all run around and go from each other's houses. And he, he was always very social. He had lots of friends. Um, he was just a very happy little boy and until he started going to preschool, which was probably about four or five, maybe five years old. And we put him in a little Montessori and he would just refuse to engage and he would just curl up on the floor and go to sleep and kind of then would also come home and, and try to communicate to us that, other children were pinching him or hurting him or hitting him, none of which the school sort of thought was correct. So that sort of flagged something was going on, but still we sort of just put it down to the wrong environment and thought, you know, maybe Montessori isn't for him. He needs something a bit more boisterous, something a bit more socially engaged rather than individual working. So again, we moved him to a little international school that we thought would suit and things were never quite right. There were always issues. He couldn't stand in line. He was getting into trouble quite a bit. Didn't want to go. So it was a bit of school refusal going on. But again, we kept sort of saying, well, maybe it's the teacher. You know, maybe she just doesn't handle him very well because it was such a different story we were getting from home to school that we just couldn't equate with it. And it was only really there was a sort of a defining moment where he was in a swimming class and we'd said to them, he's very particular about going underwater. You cannot make him go underwater. And they had tried to do it. And his two best friends weren't there who were his real crutches. And he got out of the pool and sat on the side of the poolside and started banging his head against the wall. And that was really when we got the call to say, look, there's something going on here. And, and we decided to, to investigate it further. Right. That must have been a very difficult time to to realise that your child was so unhappy that he was effectively 
deliberately hurting himself. Yeah, we just couldn't believe it. It was so strange to us because it was just so contrary to the little boy that we had at home, to the little boy at school. And so it was very easy to sort of blame the environment and blame the school really rather than be open to sort of looking at, at things deeper. I mean, I mean, I'm super glad that we did and we got some help. But yeah, it was it was quite a hard acceptance to to think yeah. about that. And, and, and the environment was partially part of it. I'm not saying it's there. It wasn't their fault. They were employing tactics that they would use for, you know, neurotypical children. And he, and he wasn't, but nobody knew that at the time. No. And so what did you do at that point? Where did you go? Who did you turn to? We had a recommendation from a friend of a friend to a behavioural psychologist who was in Singapore at the time. She was an American lady and she was specialised in children. And so we went to go and see her. And that was kind of the first time that we started to talk, really talk about George's behaviour and try to analyse and look for challenges and patterns and what that might tell us. And... Was he still attending the same school or had you withdrawn him from that school at this time? We hadn't withdrawn him. When we first started seeing a psychologist, we were still on a journey. We're trying to figure it out. We hadn't withdrawn him, but we did withdraw him reasonably quickly after that. And actually the, the incident that prompted that was, again, he, he had a brilliant teacher his second year there and he, and he was there nearly two and a half years. And his second year, his teacher was amazing. He got through the year, we coped, everything was great. Then we got a new teacher in a new school term and she just didn't get it at all. And there was one class and there was quite a lot of pressure to perform in that class. And as a result, he took his, when sat in the corner, took his shoes off and threw them across the room, at which point they decided to exit the entire class from the room for safeguarding issues and left this little boy sitting in there alone. And it was just a clear indication to me that they really just weren't going to cope. No. Um, so at that point, we, yeah, we pulled him out and, and um, with the help of the psychologist, found somewhere else for him to go. You use the word coping. And I think that's always a really interesting word because I talk about children needing to be able to thrive in school and coping just isn't good enough. But you use coping in the other way which is the school not being able to cope. And I think that's an interesting alternative view in some ways. Because if the child can't cope, it's not acceptable. But also if the school can't cope, it's not acceptable. And I'm not sure schools are always open to accepting that they can't cope. Would you agree? Yeah, absolutely. And I think we look at it that way because the first psychologist we worked with, you know, she was very clear to us that in time, our son would learn coping strategies. He would learn ways to regulate his behaviour and be able to embrace the world and, and do really well. But he was just too young. And trying to teach a four or five-year-old child how to regulate and how to deal with the world around him just wasn't realistic. So her advice was always, we have to change. We have to create an environment where he can thrive. And school has to create an environment where he can thrive. And the school just were completely out of their depth. And when we withdrew them, withdrew George, actually that 
headmistress came and she sat us down and she said, I'm so sorry, we've completely failed you and we can fix it. We can change things. We can learn. And I said, you can't. You just don't have the capability. You know, your classrooms are too big. Your environment is too noisy. Your teachers have not been trained. I said, it's not what you're made up to do. So, you know, we would both be hitting our heads against a brick wall and actually the person that would that would suffer is George. And that's just not acceptable for us. No, no. So what did you do next? Continue with the story. So we were put onto a little special needs school, which in itself was a massive leap for us to do. And we went and George did a half day trial. And at the end of this half day trial at a special needs school, which, you know, for me, again, I still couldn't equate that my son needed to be in that type of environment, my happy social little boy at home. And they pulled us in and they said to us, we're really sorry, we can't take him. And I looked at them and I said, I don't understand. And they said, he's so broken by the school environment he's been in that we're not sure that we have the skills to cope with him. And I just remember I just burst into tears and I just said, look, we are in a foreign country. You are the only special needs school within a 30 mile radius. You have to help him. You can't, if you abandon him, where does he go? What do we do? You have to find a way. And bless them, they did. And they put him into almost like a eight week intensive class where there was just three of them. Then the other two children had severe special needs and they literally put him back together piece by piece so that he could cope with sitting in a classroom with just seven other children. But it was, it was horrendous. You know, as a parent, we just couldn't believe that this is what we needed to do and, and what he needed. But it was. Yes. And one of the challenges lots of parents find themselves in is and, and you've used the word accepting that this is their reality. And I think when we have children, we we all assume everything's going to be fine. And the road, no one's expecting it to be easy, but but it will be similar to our experience as a child. And we would be able to draw on our own experience. And when we realise that's not the case, that can be really difficult. And that acceptance is... It's a real thing, isn't it? It's a huge thing. I think it's probably one of the biggest things, actually. And I'm not sure, I mean, maybe there are people that are just better at it than me. I'm not sure that we ever really got there because you always want the best life for your children. And I accept that George has challenges now and I accept that he needs a different environment to thrive. But I'll never, I'll never accept that he's going to be limited. You know, I'll always try and think that there's something better that he can achieve but the school thing was really really hard and and actually when we joined this little special unit this special needs school I was very reluctant to engage I engaged with the educators because I wanted to make life better for, for my son but I refused to begin with to engage with the other parents because I just didn't feel that this was our community I didn't feel that this was going to be something that we had to engage and it was just a temporary setback and then we would be back on track and it would all be fine. And, and it took a very, very good friend of mine to sit me down and say, you know, don't be crazy. These other parents probably feel exactly the same as you, but you can learn so much and you'll get so much support from each other if you're just open to building those relationships for you as well as for, for George. And it was the best piece of advice I've ever been given because my network of other parents has taught me 
probably more than any psychologist or behavioralist or educator. I've learned more from other parents than I have from anywhere else. It sounds like that was a real lifeline, especially when you were in a foreign country and, you know, maybe an unfamiliar environment. Yeah, absolutely. It was a complete lifeline um, and, and still is to this day the parents that I've, that I've met through various schools and various activities. So how long did George stay in this special school? We were there for probably a good couple of years until we moved back to the UK. So we had ups and downs and we had um, still had plenty of meetings where we had to go in and talk to the teachers and send them lots of reading material and, you know, continue to work really closely together to make life successful for him there so that he could do well. But we were there for probably two to three years. And then you moved back to the UK. And then we moved back to the UK and sort of started our journey here. And, you know, we did that because my elder son was just starting senior school. So it was a good time for him. But also we recognised that we did need more support and we wanted to be at home and to get George into the system and to see whether that would open more doors for him and for us. Right. And what was your experience of coming back into the UK and trying to access that support? It was so hard. It was so much harder than I anticipated. You know, everyone talked about how, you know, you've got the NHS and there's lots of support and and there is, but it's not easy to access. We came back, luckily we could afford to find a little private SEN school that we paid for. They did take government funding as well, but they also had private spaces. So we paid for George to have that because we knew that there was no way we could put him back in a mainstream classroom. We just were not willing to do that. But it took, you know, a long time for us to get into the system and to be able to access any state funded support. And during that time, what were people doing or or not doing that could have helped you? Well, school, the first, because we up to this point, we'd only had a diagnosis of anxiety. So the behavioural psychologist we worked with was amazing. But as I said, she focused very much on parents changing the environment to support the child. And she was very anti putting a label on George when he was so young, which was had its pros and cons. You know, pros was because it gave us time to explore lots of different things and try and really figure out what he needed. But cons was that we, you know, we arrived in the UK with no label, no diagnosis and therefore no access to anything. The first label we got, which came from the school advising us to have it investigated, was an ADHD label, which, again, surprised me. But he was diagnosed with ADHD via a private consultation. And then we got invited to a couple of parental workshops through the NHS, which were, you know, interesting, but not particularly life changing. And that was kind of the first thing. And then when autism was first raised, when ASD was first raised as a potential diagnosis, we talked to the NHS and it was a three-year wait list. So there was just no way that that was going to be achievable. No. I mean, how old was George at this point? So he was probably nine by now. Right. So three years. Three years at that age is a very long time, isn't it? A really long time. And, you know, and you have to add on top of that, that school wasn't going particularly well so school was starting to break down and we were also conscious that the school he was at was only primary and there was no way he could go to a mainstream state school 
or even a little private school with smaller classes, he needed to be in a specialist environment. So we had to get ourselves organised and get the right diagnosis so that we could have access to the right schools and the right support to move forward. Yes. What advice would you give to somebody that found themselves in that kind of situation now? What did you do or not do that, looking back, you wish you might have done differently or you did? that actually worked really well for you? I mean, we were really lucky because we could afford to go private. And so we did. And, you know, that caused sacrifices in other areas. But, you know, we threw everything we had at it. We had a private psychiatrist and we accessed a clinic in London to do the ASD diagnosis. And we had lots of reports and written up. So when we actually went for our EHCP, we had as much evidence as we could possibly get our hands on to build something really meaningful. I think if we'd started earlier, maybe we could have got some of that done on the state. But it's overwhelming, isn't it? You know, there was a lot to do. You know, he needed medication and he needed an EHCP and he needed a diagnosis. And there were all these things that we had to pay for. But I think if we'd started earlier, we could have tackled them maybe one by one and it would have been a little bit less um, overwhelming. The one thing I will say, though, is as we went through the EHCP process, that is really overwhelming. But a good EHCP is the door that opens everything in our experience and actually really taking the time to get that right. You know, the the state will write your EHCP, the um, local council will. And what I got back just didn't reflect my son at all. And they'd cobbled together a few bits from some reports and they'd left a lot of stuff out. And we were on holiday at the time in Spain. I remember actually going into having to go and buy a Spanish laptop and spending my two weeks on holiday sitting by the pool, rewriting and rewriting and rewriting in HCP until I was really, really happy with it. Um, and it was a lot of, lot of work, but it was critical. And actually the school that we're in now, they got lots of applications. And the reason they came to meet us is because they said that the EHCP would told, really told a story and they could really see the little boy behind it and knew therefore they could deal with, with what he needed. So I think it's really important. Yeah, absolutely. And when you were going through the EHCP process, did the school support you in that process? No, not really. No. No, they said they would, but they didn't. And, you know, they supported us in the respect that they told the council that they thought he needed one, but that was pretty much it. it. Again, it was parents. I was really lucky. I had become friends with a couple of mums who had gone through the process already, and they very kindly sent me copies of their EHCPs that were amazing, so I could see the quality of what I was trying to achieve. They also introduced me to a phenomenal lady that helped me write it and helped me understand what would and wouldn't get accepted by the council and actually she even came to my review meeting with me to act as a backup and I think having somebody that was non-emotional but on your side to direct that meeting was also really important. Yeah yeah tell me a bit more about that meeting. So it was a really, really emotional meeting and it was probably one of my darkest days in this journey because we were, as I said, we were at a little privately funded SEN school and things were challenging. Things were definitely bumpy. We were getting lots of phone calls and George wasn't necessarily managing to stay through the whole day. But, you know, we were really happy with the 
friends he had there and it seemed like an okay it seemed like it was going okay to us so we got the HCP with thinking that we needed it for senior school placement and also to help with funding we turned up at the HCP meeting and to be told by the local council that his current school had said that they would no longer keep him and they couldn't meet his needs and therefore they did not want to be the school that was chosen for him and that was the first I had heard. So the summer holidays, we were meant to be going back to school in three weeks. And all of a sudden, I'm sitting there facing the fact that we have no school for my son. And I had no idea how to turn. So not only was I trying to go in and, you know, fight to get the paperwork right, but I was suddenly blindsided with this huge emotional issue of the fact that, you know, my son had been basically kicked out of school. So it was very emotional. It probably ended up helping me because the local council lady was so overwhelmed by the fact that we hadn't been told this, that all of a sudden she went from being really frosty in the meeting and sort of quite businesslike to quite supportive. And it it suddenly felt like we were all on the same page and fighting for the same child. So it probably helped us in the long run. But it was a very um, it was a very emotional and difficult day. I can't imagine. Yes. I mean, for a school to not be open and honest like that, you know, this needs to be a partnership, doesn't it? A child with significant difficulties needs everyone around them to be listening to each other, to be accepting each other. And when that doesn't happen, it leaves one party, often the parents, having to hold everything up themselves. Yeah, and it's not fair because we... I know the schools get overwhelmed and every, you know, autistic spectrum disorder is a spectrum disorder and every child is different. And that makes it really hard because what will work for one will categorically not work for another. And so it is really challenging and it is all about individual care. And it's about knowing what that particular child needs to be successful and then being prepared to provide that. But we had given the school some very specific advice, which they just didn't follow. You know, my son needed a key worker. He needed one person who would he could build a relationship with because when he feels safe with somebody, he will listen. And time and time again, we said this and time and time again, we were told, oh, we don't have the resources for that. We can't allocate a single person to be here. And I said, well, it doesn't have to be like 100% of the time, but if he just has one person that takes an interest, it will change. But yes, it's got to be a partnership absolutely has to be a partnership and I think the thing is is that you know most parents we need direction we're not experts either and so we're looking to the school to provide ideas yet I was consistently being told well what do you think we should do how do you want us to handle it and that's really overwhelming yes it is isn't it there needs to be some level of expertise doesn't there both parties need to want to learn as much as they can and go off and do their own research and bring ideas. Both parties need to bring ideas to the table and not constantly all one way. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think the key is just needs to be a dialogue. You know, as a as a parent of a child with um, SEN needs, you just, you need to know that the school wants to be in the fight. And I think that's the key thing. And that's what I've said to parents when they've asked me since then, how do you choose a school? And I said, well, they've got to want to be in it. You know, you could be at a, a mainstream school, certainly in primary, and if you've got a really supportive teacher and a really responsive head who really wants to be in the fight for your child, then that might be the best place for you to stay. 
Yes. Because it's all about that, you know, yes, that, that willingness to take them on that journey and provide an environment where they can be successful. Yes, that's very true. So what were the consequences for George of not being able to go back to school? Oh, he was, he didn't understand it. He thought he had been bad and it was his fault and he felt useless and he felt, he felt rejected, really, really rejected. And his self-confidence just went through the floor, absolutely through the floor, you know, and it was the first time he'd ever heard him say things like, I'm useless, I'm no good. Why do you even want me in, my, in the family? Maybe it would be better if I wasn't here. I mean, the, the level, you know, and he couldn't understand it. And, and obviously, you know, there was no goodbye. It was just the summer holidays and then he didn't go back. Now, the school did say, oh, he can come back if you're willing to pay the bills, but we can't guarantee we'll have him for more than a couple of hours a day. So they wanted me to pay a full-time fee for a child that they had basically said they couldn't have for more than a couple of hours a day. And I think once we knew how they felt as well, it just wasn't the right thing to do. But there just was no, yeah, he just didn't get why he couldn't say goodbye and why nobody wanted him. So it's taken a really long time to build that back up. How did you start to rebuild from such a low point like that? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, I mean, lots of love at home, lots of positive encouragement. We've never used negative connotations at home because it doesn't work for him. So just lots of continued positive encouragement. We had a couple of really great tutors while he was out of school who were incredibly patient. I think he spent the first eight math lessons with his tutor sitting under a table under a blanket, probably doing about three questions in an, in an hour. And there was just lots of positive praise and cuddles and support. But it's probably taken a year and a half at his current school for them to get him to a stage where he has some level of belief in himself again. Wow. In a child's life, that's a long time, isn't it? To have to spend, to recover to a point where they can learn and engage again. Yeah, absolutely. He's, you know, until we kept saying, you know, when do you think we'll get to education? And they kept looking at me saying, well, when we've got past self-esteem. And so we had to wait. We had to deal with self-regulation. We had, they had to deal with trying to get him to cope with failure and that failure was a part of learning and that everybody fails and it doesn't mean that they're going to throw him out. They had to deal, you know, get him to stay in the classroom and not run at the slightest um, sign of failure. Um, all of that stuff had to be dealt with before he could start learning. But they've done it. You know, it's been an incredible journey and it's got a really lovely end to it because the self-regulation is absolutely there now. You know, we've gone from a little boy that would have huge tantrums and just couldn't control himself or he would just tip over the edge to now he self-regulates. And if it starts getting too much, he'll take himself away and he'll tell us what he needs and he'll explain to us what he needs from us and, and if he needs space and all these type of things are, are really in play now. So now we're finally at the age of um, 11 and a half nearly 12, it'll be 12 next month, starting to work on his education. And how has that been for you as parents to have to essentially put your trust and faith in a school that's not prioritising education? What's that felt like? Really hard because you sort of, you equate school with exams, don't you? And, and education and growth. 
But we've seen the growth. We've seen the growth in other ways. You know, we've seen the growth in his confidence. We've seen the growth in his ability to cope in social situations. And all of these things he had, and then it's like they were stripped away from him through lots of negative experiences. And now they're really kind of coming back and, and, you know, and as he matures, he's, he's able to cope with these things. So yeah, the school have been very supportive and very clear in what they need to deal with and the order they need to deal with it. And we've had to put our sort of trust in them, but it's always hard, isn't it? You know, you always want more. You always think they're capable of more, but it's, it's that acceptance piece again. Yes. And that's incredibly hard sometimes. I know I've, I've certainly been there and felt that myself. So I completely understand. I talk about three kind of layers that a child needs to become successful. They need empathy, expertise and an environment. Which of those things, or maybe all three, but, but which of those things do you think your current school has really excelled at with George? Oh, my goodness. Um, all three. Yeah, I think they do all three really, really well. I mean, it started with empathy. I think it just started with just they genuinely saw him as a lovely little boy who had so much capability to be successful and wasn't given the environment in which that could happen. And I think that's the thing, isn't it? You know, it started with an empathy. They recognised that they could create the environment he needed, but to do that, they had to have the expertise to understand him. So they're so interlinked, I think, those three things. It's very hard to, to separate them. You know, from a parental point of view, I think we all start with empathy, don't we? And then actually, again, if we go right back to that first psychologist we saw, she gave us the expertise to build an environment for success. And I think you can't, you can't strip them out. They all have to be present Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and what difference has George's current school placement made to you as a family? I mean, you know, it's not just George, is it? You have another son as well. And, you know, what, what difference has it made? Oh, it's changed everything for us. You know, I work from home and it used to be that I would get, you know, be waiting for the phone call. Am I going to get it within the first half an hour, are we going to get to lunchtime? We're very rarely going to get to the end of the day. You know, when am I going to get the phone call that says you've got to come get him that then disrupts the whole day and throws everything into panic. And then, you know, you bring home a very distraught child who is exhausted emotionally. And then that affects everybody else in the family, doesn't it? It creates a real tension and stress in the family. I now have most of the time, a very happy boy who goes into school, enjoys being at school, comes home, likes to show me what he's made in food tech or what he's achieved. And everything is karma. We're karma as parents. He's karma as a child. And him and his brother are actually starting to build a relationship, which it was just impossible for them to do before. Because George was so on edge by the time he got home that he couldn't cope with any type of standard sort of sibling bickering. You know, that would just send him over the edge. Whereas now, actually, they can they can have that relationship. His older brother knows there are still boundaries, you know, and, and things that really George can't cope with. But everything's just calmer and happier and more in control. Life changing, really. Uh, yeah, hugely so. Yeah, hugely so. We're extremely uh, fortunate to have found the right school for him. And, you know, what's right for him might not be right 
for another child with ASD. And that's the challenge, isn't it? I think that when you're looking for a school, it's such a personal journey. And again, that's why I would say you have to go back to that EHCP. And when you write that EHCP, you have to be able to see your child in the story that it tells. And I was very tempted to tell a nicer story, (laughs) to try and sort of skate over a couple of things that might make a school not sort of so happy to have him. And actually, you've got to tell yourself that is a false economy because it might get him, you know, if you paint the wrong picture, it might get your child into a school, but it then won't be the right school. So you have to be prepared prepared to fight. It is one hell of a battle and it certainly wasn't easy, but you have to fight. Actually, my school gave me, um, because we just had to fight again because we sort of had to fight for the senior school placement and that transition. And the council wanted us to go and see a couple of other schools. And the school we're at provided this incredible spreadsheet of all of these different things not all of which George needs, but it was a very comprehensive list of everything that a child with ASD might need. And then you can go through and you can check off, you know, which ones are currently provided. And then as you go around the school, you can ask questions and check whether those still, those things will also be provided. And it was really big for us because we went to a school and it was very nice and we actually thought it was quite lovely. But when I got into some of those questions, it was really clear that they could not provide the things that George specifically needed. So any tools you can get like that to get your hands on them, I think are really useful. That sounds very helpful, Esther. Yes, it's a very useful tool for any person looking at any school for any child to to do almost like a an insurance comparison chart so that you can actually look at it black and white and try and take some of that emotion out of it because it can be such an emotional process. Well, it can be. When I first went to look at George's school, where he is very happy and doing very well, I didn't like it. It felt far too high end. It, yeah, I just didn't, you know, everything in my body was screaming. No, he doesn't need to be here. This is not, it's not a normal enough school. It doesn't feel like a, like a normal school. You know, it feels like something really specialist and everything cried against it. But, you know, when you look at it in black and white, they could provide everything he needed and they wanted to. And when we took him for his little tour, at the end of the tour, he hugged the head teacher and just said, I love it here. I really hope you'll have me and sort of walked out the door skipping. And I thought, God, you know, it's not about what I like, is it? It's about where he feels safe. And I've seen that many times, and you're absolutely right. If the child feels comfortable on a taste of visit or a taste of tour, it speaks volumes, doesn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Esther, thank you so much for sharing your story. It's been fascinating to hear the journey that you and George and the rest of the family have been on. And I'm delighted that he's now settled and learning and life is returning to what most people would consider to be some kind of normal, whatever that means in this day and age. Absolutely. Well, I hope it's, I hope there's some helpful advice in there. It's a really long journey to sort out school but I'm a great believer that actually it's such an important part of the child being successful at home as well as having the right environment and you know in an environment that's not stressful and I've got friends that you know the children can get through the school day but then they pay for it when they get home because 
the stress has built up over the day and that's the biggest difference for us there isn't any stress for him so when he comes home there isn't anything that he has to let, let go of so you know it really does um it really does help fabulous thank you so much thank you That ends this episode of Send Lightened with Amanda Sokel. For more information and to contact Amanda, please go to community.amandasokel.com.